Hello, Tom. <laughs> How you doing, Sean? Yeah, doing great, man. How about yourself? Fine, thanks. Long time no see. Yeah, thank you for rejoining us. Sure, sure. Previously, we talked about Manson, the CIA, MK Ultra. Absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, we we have a much shorter window of um, time this evening, so I'll, I'll get straight into it. But for people watching this, then who are not familiar with your work, Tom, do you just want to say a little bit about you, please? Yeah, yeah. I published a book about a year and a half ago called uh, "Chaos: Charles Manson, the CIA." and the secret history of the 60s. And it was a book that began as a magazine article in 1999 when I was asked to commemorate in a story that what was then gonna be the uh, 30th anniversary of the Manson murders. And a very long story short, the article started growing beyond its uh, perimeters and became a book, but the book took me 20 years to finally complete because I went beyond the Manson murders when I found out that most of what we've been told about that case was a lie. Uh, And when I found out what it was covering up and what it was falsely presenting uh, led to a lot of other stories, including the CIA's involvement in a lot of domestic uh, activities in the 60s. Well, actually going back to the 50s through the 60s. And I I stopped in the early 70s. I didn't really want to look beyond that because... uh, (laughs) I was already having too much uh, stuff for one book. (laughs) So is this book getting optioned then into a series? It actually was optioned based on the book proposal in 2017. Uh, The second book proposal, I had a deal prior to that with another publisher and they got impatient, canceled the deal and sued me for the return of the advance, which was a pain in the butt. But um, when we did the second book proposal, uh, Amazon Studios purchased it, optioned the book for uh, a feature film. And at the time, I was flat broke and in debt to the prior publisher, and I had no say over whether it would be a limited series or a feature. Uh, and I had to agree to that in order to get the money to support me for the, what was going to be the final three years. So Amazon renewed the option. They had it two times 18 months, whatever that is. But then they pulled the plug this past uh, November, December on the feature project. Uh, Unfortunately for for the writer and the producer who I really liked who were kind of shepherding it along, they decided or or they told the writer and producer they didn't want to have older, white, middle-aged protagonists in their new new feature film lineup. Uh, They wanted to look for people of color or women I don't know if that was true or not, but to be honest, I was frankly relieved because I didn't think you could tell the story in two hours. I thought you needed a you know, good six, eight, ten hours, uh, and that might be a little grandiose on my part, but there's a lot of stuff in that book. So uh, now we're reselling it uh, as a, only as a limited series or, or streaming series, but we also have um, you know, the documentary rights are available now, too. And those are being negotiated possibly by uh, a really impressive filmmaker who, um, if he does it, it will be pretty incredible. He's he's talked to one of the major streamers and we're waiting for a final decision. Oh, I hope it goes through. I can't wait to see that. So there's a possibility then of U.S. Department of Justice looking into the LADA's office and LAPD's handling of the Manson case, which are based on your findings. What are your findings that have caused this? 
Well, that's actually another thing that hasn't become definite yet, but it's uh, getting it's getting closer and closer. An op-ed writer uh, has written a piece demanding that the uh, Justice Department look into just my uh, discoveries in the Tate LaBianca investigation and trial, where I proved that there was a lot of shenanigans behind the scenes. Lawyers had been switched by the prosecution to the detriment of the defense. People's uh, human uh, civil rights uh, were violated. And, you know, again, everybody who, no matter what crime they commit, deserves a fair trial. And what I found out is the DA's office protected more powerful people who were involved and behind these murders than the five people who went to prison for them. And um, this op-ed writer has uh, actually, you know, gotten the green light and written the op-ed and we're waiting to hear if this national newspaper here in the United States is going to publish it. If they do, I think it could result. I mean, she's basically saying she's laying out my evidence and then her argument for why uh, there's really nothing else to do than to reopen the case, also to look for the possible other murders uh, victims committed by, by the group. So this mainstream story of Manson is that he was a cult leader he had his followers hooked on drugs, including LSD. He motivated them to go out and do these horrific acts while you know he stayed at the home base or wherever he was. But there's a much bigger picture, isn't there, of CIA involvement and the, how LSD got into the scene. Could you expand on the CIA's relationship? Sure, here? sure. Well, I mean, the history of CIA in the United States is it was originally brought over and used by military intelligence, uh, Army, Navy, and the Central Intelligence Agency, who were experimenting first among, you know, the, uh, recruits in their, at their own camps and bases and prisoners, and then they took it out into the general population in a, in a program that was called MKUltra that began in 1953. And for a minimum of 20 years, 63-73, secret, uh, research was done on uh, American citizens without their knowledge. You know, LSD was tested and given to anyone from, again, prisoners to uh, people who signed up for uh, drug tests and didn't know what the drugs were. And also, you know, in brothels in San Francisco and New York and Los Angeles, uh, Johns were lured to apartments by prostitutes and then given LSD uh, and then observed by scientists behind double mirrors in these uh, apartments that were set up to look like bordellos. Uh, and that was done mostly in San Francisco beginning in about 1964. And then in 1967, this one CIA scientist named Louis J. West, Jolly West, opened one of his own um, kind of projects in the Haight-Ashbury district uh, and during the same time that Manson formed the family there. Uh, and that's all kind of detailed in the book. I shouldn't get too much in the weeds if we don't have much time. But um, it's all part of a, a bigger picture of what the government was doing that, you know, violated every Hippocratic and, and, and you know, civil and criminal oath that a law enforcement person takes in the United States and beyond. You know, this happened in Canada. And the U.S. Uh, would also take it over to foreign countries, usually um, Southeast Asia, where we were already involved in the war, the Vietnam War, uh, and test on those populations. So what do you believe the CIA's role was then in the 
LSD supply of the 1960s to the hippie generation? Well, I know that until about uh, in, until some people who left the CIA or who had learned how to do it from their uh, affiliation with the CIA started distributing themselves in the mid 60s, they were the only ones who had it. Uh, then people learned how to synthesize it, and there were some famous guys in the hate and. Los Angeles and elsewhere, uh, Oscar Ganniger and Osley, uh, who were um, making it and actually giving it out for free. But the question is, the, the CIA still controlled the purse springs on, the strings on it, and they were the ones that really put it, uh, ironically, into the mainstream population during what became known as the 60s and, and the revolutionary period, which was fueled by drugs, free sex, and love. Might have. I'm not saying this definitively, but I present a pretty good case in my book, I hope, might have been actually um, created by our own, I mean, the United States, our own government. So you're saying that Timothy Leary and Ken Casey were unwittingly part of that project? Not so sure about Timothy Leary. Uh, I think Ken Casey was unwitting, but as far as unwitting, I'm not so sure about Leary. Um, he, he, that whole story is a mystery to me. It's something I'm looking into possibly for if I do a second book, you know, just how much was he involved with the government's distri distribution and testing of the drug? So we've had a few ex-CIA guys on and, they, you know, they've made it clear that, you know, it's in the interests of national security and protecting the domestic population is the purpose of the agency. So what, what would the national security interest be by releasing all the LSD, how would that benefit America? Well, if you look at it in the context of when this began in the 1950s, we were in the middle of a Cold War, and the United States learned that the Soviets and the Chinese had developed techniques to brainwash human beings using LSD, hypnotism, different drugs, isolation. And originally, the, the program began before MK Alter. They had two or three other names for Bluebird, Artichoke, uh, it, it was instituted as a defense program to learn how to prevent our soldiers on foreign soil from being captured and brainwashed because the United States believed that happened during the Korean War in the early 50s. Eventually, when they learned how actually um, profoundly effective this was, they decided to make an, off an offensive program where they learned how to do the same things they believed the Soviets and Chinese could do. And, you know, when all of it kind of came out in, into the public in 1974, 75 through 77, uh, the CIA, once they kind of got caught uh, at the hearings, testified under oath that, yes, they had done this. Yes, it was covert. Yes, it was the most expensive program that they had ever been involved with to that point and most secret but nothing had been successful. It was silly. LST was too uh, uncontrollable. So it was really just a silly, you know, gang that couldn't shoot straight after. But what I found in my research, done original documents from this one Dr. West saying, no, no, it was very effective. In 1954, he reported that he had learned how to develop, he had developed the technology to replace true memories with false ones permanently without a person's awareness. And that's like the golden calf, you know, to the CIA. Because once you can do that, you really can do anything with the person's mind. What was the method that they used to do then? 
Well, that's it. He doesn't outline it in the paper I have, uh, but uh, I, don't, I know that what he did was he used LSD, isolation, and hypnotism in combination. And there were other drugs, that, uh, BZ or something, that, that aren't named, but I had to kind of, you know, follow a path through other research. Uh, but it was mostly just a combination of drugs, hypnosis, and sensory isolation. So as drug science has advanced dramatically since those decades, do you think that such experiments exist in this day and age? Yeah, I, I get asked that a lot. And um, I hate to speculate because it's really pure speculation on my part because I've never really looked into it. I, I'll, I'll just say I can't imagine that they would do what they did, which was they said in 73 when they ended the program, they did destroy all the records. I know that where they hid them in a really good place, but I can't imagine if they learned how to create these kinds of mind control weapons that they wouldn't still be using them. But I, I can't even begin to speculate on how. I, I know a lot of people out there do speculate on that, you know, with the mass shootings and whatnot. Um, I'm just trying to stick to the 20 years or so of my own research. Maybe at another point, I'll look into more contemporary stuff. So as you've been getting massive views and followings on the videos on social media, Tom, have people reached out to you with any other projects? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the good thing. I mean, I mean, the book had a good reception uh, when it came out in the summer of 2019, but it wasn't until I went on to one of your, um, uh, I don't know if he's a competitor or not, or uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. And I can't remember <laughs> if I did you before or after. That's a big one, isn't it, Rogan? Yeah, yeah. He got me on there, and that kind of changed the entire trajectory of the book. So it sold a lot wow. more. It got into a lot more people's hands. And especially since him, I hear, you know, from anywhere from a few to a few dozen people every day, 90% of them are crackpots, but 10% of them are uh, really uh, credible resources. I mean, I, it takes a long time to filter through, and there's a lot of back and forth, but I've got a half dozen people right now, some of them ex-military intelligence, a couple of, uh, let's just say, very wealthy people with a lot of money and have invested a lot in getting these answers. I think more for hobbies than anything else, but I've got a lot of good new avenues of, of, of research and, and investigation open to me now. So I'm talking to my collaborator, Dan Pipenbring, who worked with me on the first book about doing a second. And we're just trying, I mean, I can't do it alone because it'd be another 20 years. I need him to rein me in. So the only way I'll do it is if I get enough explosive, definitive answers, because uh, I don't want to just re regurgitate what I've already done. But I, I think I'm getting close. We're getting close. When you spend years researching a subject and writing about it, as I've done with Escobar, it's like putting together a big jigsaw puzzle, I've found. Yeah. So in, in uh, recent years then, as you know, more book sales have come in and more people have seen your videos, have other people come forward to you that have made you revise things or filled in parts of that jigsaw that you had not previously filled in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I even had to do corrections to the first book. So when you publish a hardcover, if the book is successful enough, then they'll release it again in paperback. And that's where you have the opportunity to do corrections. And, you know, I was embarrassed, but mostly things like spellings and dates and, and stuff like that. Nothing really significant. 
but we have a lot of corrections in the paperback. So I actually, I, you can't even get the hardcover, but because during COVID, uh, they stopped printing it because it wasn't considered an essential item. And that was kind of a mixed blessing of going on Rogan. I went on in April of 2020, and all of a sudden there was this massive demand for the book, but there were no books available. He sold out all the remaining copies just by announcing it. Uh, and then nobody could get it until June, till the paperback came out. So the paperback, I tell everybody to, to get if they're looking for a new copy. A lot of people like to listen to it, which I also listen to books, but the, I have 60 pages of footnotes that are really important. I mean, it shows my sourcing, it tells people where to look. And I think that's what's happening. A lot of people also are picking up kind of the stones or the pebbles I threw out there and going beyond. And they come to me with, have you seen this? Do you know that? And the internet has even changed in the two years since the book came out. There's much more stuff available. That's also dangerous, as you probably know, because there's so much crazy unsourced stuff on the internet, but just stuff like old newspaper articles, court documents, people come to me with that. I feel like I have a hundred researchers working for me now, whereas before I was like this lonely guy in Venice in a bungalow feeling like I didn't have a friend or a helper in the world. So it's nice. So in the last uh, year or so, since Rogan at least, with this army of internet sleuths, have you learned anything new that has surprised you? Uh, yeah, some things I missed. Again, I didn't get them wrong, but I, there were some things I missed that uh, other people, but these people had invested a lot of time in them. That, that Some stuff that people principled in my work had also done, but it's not in my book because I didn't find it. So that's, uh, you know, a half dozen of these guys who were circulating Manson and that group and the hate were doing a lot more stuff uh, that I'm finding out now. Um, and I, you know, it leads into other assassinations. I might've mentioned, mentioned this the last time I was on your show was that the, uh, Robert Kennedy assassination, I had done a lot of my own reporting on that, but there was just so much that we decided to hold it back from the book because the book would have been too long. And we're hoping that we're going to be able to use that in a second book, uh, as well. And there's a couple other kind of historic cases too. What is your theory of the Robert Kennedy assassination? Yeah, I believe that, you know, Sirhan didn't know how or why he got into the pantry at the Ambassador Hotel and, and shot at, which he did. He shot a gun at, uh, at Kennedy and there was a second gunman in that pantry. And, you know, I'm far from the first person to say that. And a lot of reputable, reputable people, you know, cops, intelligence people who looked at the evidence believe that. I believe he was brainwashed, much the way the girls were brainwashed in, in the Manson family. And uh, I'm hoping that as long as he's alive, which he, he's still in prison, and I think he has a parole hearing coming up uh, at some point, maybe in the fall, as long as he's alive, it's much easier to kind of make a case for getting information from the government. They're not going to give it to you, but you get people who are dying or guilty because they know stuff to come forward. Once they're dead, that kind of closes the door, unfortunately, and, and he's... No, he's a healthy guy. I think he's probably in his early to mid-70s. So right now, I've probably gotten him killed like Epstein or something. <laughs> I hope not. I know that's another area you guys uh, report on. That's I don't have any information about that. Yeah, my new book's coming out in about a month or so. Uh, Who Killed Epstein, Prince Andrew or Bill Clinton? I saw that. I <laughs> now I don't know which side it was on, but I, I should have voted. Yeah, it's good. So we've about five minutes left, and we've got a load of questions that have come in from the viewers for you, Tom. So the first one 
Is there a name or reference for the replacing of memories that CIA are allegedly capable of? That's from Amanda. Thanks, Amanda. Is there a name like uh, uh, I don't think so. I mean, uh, you mean like a code name or? Is there a name or reference for the replacing of memories? I, I imagine like a phrase they use perhaps for, for that. Not that I know of. I mean, I've got, you know, quite a few pages on it in, in, in my book where I quote from the uh, documents I have. And it's, the language is just pretty simple. You know, it was Jolly West's own words saying that he has developed the technology to remove true memories, replace them with false. I don't know if they ever gave it some kind of operational name. And you've got new information on Timothy McVeigh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I knew that uh, there was a lot of rumors out there that West had gotten involved with Timothy McVeigh. And if people in your audience don't know, he was the Oklahoma City bomber who um, was prior to 9-11 responsible for the, you know, the biggest mass murder in United States history well, the, after the Indians. And um, he was executed shortly after. But West... Uh, and I'm not promoting my book, but I also write about my book about West's manipulation of Jack Ruby, who killed Oswald and then uh, died a couple of years later after being convicted. Uh, and West mysteriously became Ruby's uh, psychiatrist right before he was going to testify to the Warren Commission. And the day that West started treating him, Ruby lost his mind. Well, Ruby, uh, West had the same relationship with Timothy McVeigh. And um, I'm hoping to talk to a bunch of people that were involved in the case who've never spoken before, who can do provide documents to show that this was something West did for, you know, the better part of four, four decades. Getting involved in these notorious cases, also the Patty Hearst case, who was ki kidnapped by the Symbionese Lebanese, Lebanese I'm sorry, I didn't pronounce it right now, I'm talking too fast. The SLA. Yeah, these are all absolutely fascinating cases that we, we mm -hmm. can really speak at length on. Um, Amanda, who asked the question earlier, which causes some confusion, has added, I was asking for the name of the tech, like V2K. Uh, I don't know what V2, V2K is. I think it's some kind of spy slang. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on to the next question um, from Momzilla. Do you know about the current lawsuit by Montrealers against CIA, Allen Memorial yeah. Hospital, and the Canadian government for MK Ultra experiments? Yes, yes. That's been going on for quite a while. One of the people involved in the lawsuit contacted me. There was a great podcast on it where they spoke to some of Ewan, Ewan Cameron, was the name of the psychiatrist who worked for the MK Ultra operation and did her absolutely horrific experiments with his patients where he'd give them LSD daily and he did what they call patterning. You know, they would hear these recordings over and over in their head. Um, and uh, the government of Canada has already awarded some of the victims uh, a substantial sum of money. Uh, I think that was in like the eighties, which didn't allow them to, to make another claim against the government, but they've somehow learned a way to do it because they should have gotten a lot more money. I wish I could remember the name of the podcast that came out, but it was a couple of Canadian journalists who interviewed some of the victims, their family members, uh, and even Ewan Cameron who died a long time ago, his son. And it's an incredible story. Um, and I do think that they'll prevail. I hope there's media coverage. I'm, I think it's kind of stalled right now. I'm not sure if it's as a COVID or, or what, but I know it's ongoing. 
huge thank you for coming on tom we've run out of time I'll, I'll put all your links in the description box below the video your books and everything else is there a preferred method uh, people can contact you yeah yeah i have a uh you i think you have it on there my wordpress website page which has my email address trmo at aol.com i'm very old school and i don't want to drop a name but i've been talking to quentin tarantino and uh, he reached out to me uh, a few months ago because it took him that long to have time to read my book. And he also is an AOL user. So I tell that to all my young friends who call me a boomer or whatever. I say, hey, man, Tarantino's cool enough to use AOL. So that's, yeah, they can contact me that way. And I have Instagram and Facebook, and they can message me or DM. I'm, I'm still learning how to use the social media. But uh, I also have a lot of documents and videos up on my Instagram and Facebook pages for the book, which you have links to. Absolutely brilliant. If you make any plans to come out to London, let us know. Nope. We'll, we'd love to um, interview in the studio properly. Oh, great. Great. Good luck with your book, Sean. Thanks, Tom. You have a great rest of your Wednesday then. All right, thank you. Thank you. Take Cheers. Care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Hey, good. How are you? Yeah, absolutely fantastic. I'm just bringing Lisa in now as well. Let's just give me one second. There we go. Yes. There we go. She should be coming in. Yeah, every time I speak to you, I end up just going on YouTube and putting to catch a predator in and watching <laughs> more of those clips. Just, I've watched them over and over again. They're just so fascinating. Well, we have more coming, too. Yeah. Some that we've already shot and some that we're getting ready to go out and shoot in some different areas of the country. And so it's exciting. And how's your YouTube channel coming along? It's going well. You know, I, we were working on some stuff today, some new content, uh, some of it actually on the subject we're going to discuss today on, uh, on Nygaard. And uh, some other things you may have seen, um, you know, the verdict in the um, George Floyd case and some of the other cases alleging police abuse uh, targeting people of color. So we're going to take a look at that. And uh, God, we have this one that'll blow your mind. Do you remember the Danny Pelosi case that murder out in the Hamptons years ago? He was the handyman who was having a relationship with a woman who was married to Ted Annan, and he ends up being killed. And is a long trial and an investigation, and he claims he didn't do it, but he's in uh, Attica, mm -hmm. and there's uh, allegations that he's been up to very questionable activity from behind bars. So we're going to explore that. Wow, can't wait to hear more about that then. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Lisa. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you, Sean. How are you? Yeah, doing great. Lots of people, you know, watched what you did with us previously. Great reception. But for people who are not familiar with Lisa, would you like to just tell the viewers a little bit about you? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Sean. Really appreciate it. Um, my name is Lisa Haba. I'm an attorney with the Haba Law Firm. We are located primarily in the Orlando area of Florida in the United States. And my background is I was a criminal prosecutor for about eight years. I focused primarily on attacking crimes of sex crimes against children and women. Um, we also focused primarily on human trafficking and brought some of the early human trafficking uh, criminal cases in our area of Florida. I have since then gone into private practice. And our law firm now specializes and focuses specifically on helping women and children navigate the civil side of sexual abuse and human trafficking. 
Absolutely brilliant work, and thanks to huge thanks to both of you for coming on and spending some more time with us this evening. So, what is the latest on the Nygaard case? And you know, we were contemplating who the co-conspirators could possibly be on previous videos, but now the names are actually coming out into the public domain. Yes, and there have been several co-conspirators, uh, but probably the primary co-conspirator I want to focus on today is a man named Danny Fitzgerald who has a lawsuit that's been filed against him. And Danny Fitzgerald was one of Peter Nygaard's dearest friends and was very much involved in the human trafficking conspiracy that Peter Nygaard brought forth. Yeah, and I just read this article about this guy. He's got over 100 million in property. It came out a couple of years ago. What's the deal with this guy, Chris? Well, it appears that he's a running buddy of Peter Nygaard's. And Lisa knows this all too well from uh, her investigation into the case. And, and he would uh, be at these pamper parties in uh, Marina del Rey, where Nagat has a huge home. And, and it, it, the odd thing is, Sean, that they weren't trying to hide this. You know, they, they produced videos of these pamper parties. And for anybody who doesn't know what those are, or is still catching up with the Nagat story, these are parties that Nygaard would throw along with his cohorts and uh, co-conspirators, both at his estate in the Bahamas and in Marin del Rey and other places. And women would be invited, uh, oftentimes with the wink and a nod promise of perhaps getting involved in modeling, as we know Nygaard's a fashion mogul, and um, with also the promise of a good party and um, manicures and all kinds of other things. And it's alleged that a lot of these women were abused and sexually assaulted after attending these parties. And Danny Fitzgerald was was in the mix here. So the question is, did he enable this activity? What did he know about Nygaard's activity? Did he travel with him on some of these excursions to take part in some of this behavior? Uh, and also the overseas travel for stem cell research and, and other things that Nygaard was involved in. Wow. Stem cell research, what was the angle on that? Well, according to investigators, <clears throat> that, um, you know, Nygaard was obsessed with uh, anything that would uh, contribute to his quest for a fountain of youth, up to and including impregnating young women, uh, encouraging or forcing them to have abortions, harvesting the stem cells from the fetus, and then having them injected into his own body, which is very, very alarming and strange stuff. But... Uh, according to those involved in this case, that actually happened. Good grief. Any other bizarre revelations, Lisa? Well, there's this case is nothing but bizarre revelations. <laughs> there has been Sadly. new concepts every day that I didn't even know existed until this case happened. But there, primarily with Danny Fitzgerald is concerned, one of the things that we found to be rather alarming was that not only was he promoting the pamper parties, not only was he attending the pamper parties, bringing women to the pamper parties, he also was bringing women to dinners and poker events at the Marina del Rey compound that Peter Nygaard uh, owned and, and ran a lot of these events out of in California. Danny Fitzgerald also participated in the sex trafficking venture. So, We've alleged in our complaint against Annie Fitzgerald that Jane Doe's one through three all were trafficked by Peter Nygaard to his good and dear friend, Danny Fitzgerald, so that these poor women were forced to have sex with Danny Fitzgerald as part of a swap, if you will. It was very commonplace at Marina Del Rey where Peter Nygaard and people like Danny Fitzgerald 
Um, he's not the only one that did it, but he was one of several. And he would basically swap a girl for a girl. So they would come in, they would bring somebody with them to the Marina Del Rey property. They would be told that they're all, everyone's going upstairs. And then Peter Nygaard would essentially engage in sexual activity with Danny Fitzgerald, the girl Danny Fitzgerald brought, and the girl that Peter Nygaard offered to Danny, they would basically swap for sexual favors. The difference is that this was not a consensual act. This was a part of a human trafficking scheme where these women didn't have a choice in the matter. They were being treated like property and commodities. How did Danny Fitzgerald amass over 100 million in property? And will that portfolio be available then to be liquidated to compensate victims if it gets to that stage? Well, I don't know that I can answer yet what's going to happen with damages. We haven't gotten that far in this case yet. Um, we're still at the preliminary stages of it. But Danny Fitzgerald, and we've put this in our complaints as well, owns Danny Hollywood Homes. And he has amassed a fortune from what our research tells us pursuing that endeavor. He is a land developer and he has properties that he has rented out to various celebrities over the years and has amassed the fortune that he has in that endeavor. All right, before we go over to Tina then, you've got a couple of questions coming from the viewers. Matthew Steeples said, do either of the guests have any further info about Prince Andrew and Sarah Ferguson's friendship with Mr. Nygaard? I don't, I do not have any information that I'm able to share at this time, unfortunately. And I'd have to echo that. I mean, obviously there have been <clears throat> rumors and suggestions that uh, Prince Andrew had some involvement with uh, uh, with Nygaard, or at least visited the uh, Nygaard cave. But uh, thus far, um, that's as far as as I can take it in terms of the information that I have at this point. It seems everywhere Prince Andrew turns, there is alleged debauchery. All right, next question is from Mumzilla. Why hasn't Canada filed any charges against Nygaard? Well, I wish I had the answer to that as well. Um, unfortunately, I am a civil attorney. I am not a criminal attorney at this point in my career. Um, my focus and primary concern is representing my clients who are the, the the abuse victims in this case in their civil endeavor against Danny Fitzgerald, against Peter Nygaard and the like. Canada's criminal investigators, I'm sure, are doing a wonderful job investigating the case, but where they are in their process, I unfortunately am not privy to that information. Well, the criminal charges that uh, Nygaard is now facing come out of uh, New York City and the uh, grand jury here in Manhattan uh, and the Human Trafficking Task Force here. But there have been earlier investigations in Winnipeg uh, where women alleged uh, sexual impropriety, sexual assault on the part of Nygaard going back uh, many decades into the, into the 80s. And in each of those cases, um, he has escaped complete prosecution because either the witness declined to continue prosecution or there were questions uh, about the, uh, uh, the case itself. The notion being that uh, some of these people were given financial settlements and the, the criminal charges were dropped. But there, there have been allegations in, in some of the people that we interviewed in our documentary on Discovery Plus, unseemly, the Peter Nygaard investigation are in that documentary and you can hear their harrowing tales watch the documentary the series and we've seen that so many times the ndas the financial settlements sure. does that lisa give these super predators a sense of untouchability because they can just throw their money around and they've got these vast resources for legal teams 
Well, that's exactly what has been happening for approximately 50 years. I mean, Peter Nygaard was known for drowning people in the legal process. But, you know, and I want to echo the hashtag that has sort of popped up in the Canadian sphere, time's up Nygaard. Well, time is up. You can't continue to drown people in legal fees and drown people in court processes. He now is, has to face the music. And, you know, his time truly is up. He's currently sitting in the Winnipeg jail and he is pending extradition to the United States for criminal charges to be followed by our civil lawsuit. A question is coming from Amanda. Thanks, Amanda. Uh, what is your opinion as to why there is not more funding resources thrown at human and sex trafficking? I'll, I'll answer that. Honestly, I think there's just not enough understanding and belief by people across the United States and across the world. It's very easy to think that that's happening somewhere else. That's happening in other countries. That's happening in third world countries and in very poverty stricken areas. But that's not happening here. That's not happening in my backyard. Well, I can tell you that I have firsthand worked on cases that have happened to affluent people, to poor people, to every race, every walk of life, every kind of person is potentially a victim of human trafficking and potentially is exposed to people that are victims. And so I think part of our issue is that the reality is not the perception in society and people are very quick not necessarily even through bad will, but maybe just through lack of knowledge to turn a blind eye to what's happening right behind them. And right. Yeah, in I think Lisa hit it right on the head. I, I have no less than three projects going right now involving human trafficking, uh, sex trafficking specifically, and you would be shocked as to who the potential victims are. And it's not the traditional, um, you know, desperate people uh, working in truck stops. It, it goes much beyond that the targets of this and the way they're groomed and the way they're brought into the trafficking systems, it's, it's just absolutely mind boggling. And, and I've been covering this sort of thing for 40 years uh, and it shocks me. That's what we heard from ex-CIA Nick McKinley the other week, how, you know, all kids are available to these predators through the internet now. So it can happen in anyone's homes, you know, teenagers mm -hmm. um, looking for someone to show them, some kind of attention and these predators capitalize on that and next thing you know these kids are, are groomed or snatched and the parents don't know where they've gone and on and on and on it goes so it seems mm -hmm. like there's almost an epidemic of that now perhaps it is a function of technology well i think it's technology i mean think about this when we did our very first predator investigation 17 years ago we merely had decoys and chat rooms on AOL and Yahoo. So imagine the explosion and expansion of social media platforms since then. Combine that with this pandemic. And for more than a year now, kids have been sticking their nose and engaging their mind and creativity and adventure in uh, the internet, in the digital space. And so there are more places where they can be preyed upon. They're spending more time in those places and the predators know that. Uh, and so this engagement, you know, we used to say when we were kids growing up uh, that, um, you know, don't talk to strangers, it's still good advice. But the difference today is the fellow who's a stranger on a Tuesday because of his skill at grooming is not a stranger by Friday and is a danger to your child. So, oh, go on, Lisa, sorry, go, go on, please. You know, we always say I wouldn't I wouldn't invite a stranger into my house and invite them to go up to my child's bedroom. But to every parent that allows their kids to get on the Internet without certain restrictions and, and 
software to make sure the child is not speaking to strangers, especially through social media, you are essentially inviting the world's worth of strangers into your child's bedroom every single time they walk, they get online. So it's no wonder that amongst those strangers, the predators are able to find our very vulnerable children. It's just mind boggling, isn't it? So in previous interviews, we've discussed Tina Chulikorpi. Would you like to just tell the viewers watching this evening who she is and what the updates are on her? Sure, Sean. Tina Chulikorpi, we've done an extensive uh, background research both on her and the entire NIGARD operation. And she was one of NIGARD's right-hand people. She was very, very involved based on our research and what our investigation has shown into the NIGARD operation. She was involved in cover-ups. She was involved in making sure that girls either didn't report or reports that went to HR disappeared or that reports of misconduct didn't end up hurting Peter Nygaard. She was so involved, in fact, that even as, as recently as this past year, we've heard allegations and reports that she has been complicit with the Nygaard operation in attempting to hide assets, attempting to move things around to make sure that Peter Nygaard is still protected, quote unquote. So part of Team Tula Corpi's position to date has been being that right-hand person for Peter Nygaard. I would just say that we are now at a crossroads. We are at a point when individuals in our society that were part of the Nygaard operation have to make a choice. They're either gonna be on Team Nygaard and they're going to support a monster who would rape and treat horrifically human beings as young as, as 14 in our allegations. And as I think our oldest victim was just shy of 50. And out of all of these people, it's mind boggling that somebody would choose to support such a monster. Or, as many have done, those people can come forward. Tina Chulakorpi has is in that, that crossroads right now. She is in that point when she has to make a choice of where she wants to stand. And people can reach out to your law offices. That's something we've discussed previously, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. We are online at the Haba Law, excuse me, www.habalaw.com. Um, our phone number is 844-HABA-LAW. Is there anything you'd like to add about Tina, Chris? Well, I just think it's, uh, as you know, Lisa so eloquently put it, it's, it's time for people who know things to come forward. Otherwise, they're likely going to face prosecution. I mean, you saw the same thing in the Epstein case with Jelaine Maxwell. Um, these guys don't operate alone. They have enablers, they have assistants, they have right-hand people, as Lisa said. And in this case, for uh, almost a half century, Nygaard operated with impunity because he was able to uh, throw money around and intimidate people and buy off government officials in the Bahamas and, and silence uh, not only victims, but uh, silence the media up in Canada which has a different and more stringent set of rules when it comes to uh, press freedoms, uh, rules that we don't have here. And he's getting a, a taste of his own medicine right now, being locked up and not being able to get out on bail and not being able to get all the supplements. And you know, <laughs> right now, it looks like he's not going to even get an extradition hearing until November. And so he's going to be cooling his heels. And the court up there shows no signs of allowing him out on bail, no matter what conditions, what tether or, or what house arrest. I think he's going to be in, in jail for the duration. And then when he does get extradited, guess where he goes here in New York City? Same, same place as Epstein. Epstein was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So newly named in the case then, Ken Grondin, Greg Fensk, David Patton, 
What are their roles? Well, all of these people were part of the NIGARD international operation. And we've named all of these individuals in our lawsuit because they were key executives that we have evidence knew exactly what was going on and helped cover it up. They helped cover it up through a variety of means. They helped either erase traces of it from around the world. If it was reported, the reports would go away, people were paid off. But essentially the executives made sure that business as usual continued and NIGAR was not impeded. Because as we've been told so many times, Nygard International was a huge company, but the company was Peter Nygard. So Peter Nygard was happy, the company was happy. And Peter Nygard was not happy, the company was not happy. So given that each of these people was named in the complaint as co-conspirators and enablers of the horrific trafficking operation Peter Nygard ran. So as brilliant as it is the work that you're doing for the survivors, is there some frustration that he got away with it for so long and he's so old right now? And, you know, even if he gets a massive sentence, he's probably not got much longer left to live anyway. Well, I can tell you, I think it's been very frustrating for a number of our clients. Many people wanted to report before this. Many people have tried to report before this and it fell on deaf ears or it was, they were silenced by governments. They were silenced by individuals in the company, but I think the important thing to focus on is not so much what failures of the past existed, but more what we're doing now. In the heart of the Me Too era and in the heart of the current status quo in the world, people are saying enough is enough. We are not going to continue to let the Epsteins and the Cosbys and the Weinsteins of the world run this. And now we're going to add Peter Nygaard to that same list of perpetrators that just cannot continue to do this any longer. We've got um, a few questions come in again from the viewers. Abe would like to know if any celebrities were involved in the Nygaard crimes. I am not aware of any celebrities that were involved in a, in a collaborator role at this time. Okay, I, I, I kind of like thought that might be the answer. We've got a question here from Tim Wilson more of a broader question. What about the mass sexual assault of US women in the US military? Over 26,000 cases from the last few years. Do you have a general opinion on that? I think anytime you have massive sexual assault occurring, there certainly is a problem with the infrastructure. And anytime you have entities and organizations, businesses, government being included in that, that's allowing such abuses to go on unchecked, it's unacceptable and it has to change. So if there are if there are survivors out there that have been exposed to such abuses, please call our law firm and we are more than happy to explore that and see if we can't find, bring justice. And we've seen uh, some very uh, uh, high profile cases in the last year uh, at military bases across the country and, and some shocking stories that have come back uh, from women uh, soldiers in deployment. Without being able to get these issues properly addressed, so finally it's starting to come uh, to the surface here. And uh, uh, but as Lisa says, I, I think it, at some point, if it doesn't, if there's no uh, accountability uh, from a financial standpoint, then uh, many times you just don't see policy changes uh, or, or you know changes to the deeply ingrained 
attitudes that this is okay or that you got to tough it out. It's a, it's a it's a man's world. You see it in medicine too, and we're going to story having to do with that with uh, women surgeons who have faced not to the same extent they have in the military, but a certain level of sexual harassment that was ingrained in the system and, and tolerated for some time. So what policy changes do we need to see to prevent future NIGARDs? How can those changes be made? You know, skeptics would say that the system is rigged, whereby these super predators have got these vast resources. They're always going to get away with this kind of thing. Um, in the UK, you know, we saw the Jimmy Savile case, which which left many people appalled as well because he got away with it for so long. Well, I think you have to shine a harsh light on it, which is exactly what we're doing on this program and in the series on Discovery Plus and what Lisa's law firm does every day. And I think, you know, shining a light on it, exposing it, uh, creating a dialogue, taking people inside of the crime with enterprising reporting, as, as we did in the Unseemly series, gets people's attention. It gets law enforcement uh, attention. And that's what needs to happen here. And, and it also sparks movements, the Me Too movement. And you're going to see a reckoning next, I think, in a lot of these social media circles where you've got these younger people who suddenly are plucked out of high school and uh, they get millions and millions of dollars and they're living in homes unsupervised and no rules. And so, you know, now we're seeing, you know, multiple cases of allegations of sexual assault and impropriety and just bullying and, 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 and all this going on on a daily basis um, on the internet, on TikTok, on all these influencer sites. And it's, um, that's going to be the next, uh, the next frontier. But yeah, we're going to have to continue to be vigilant and, and not let up on this. But imagine the progress that's been made in the last two years. And a lot of it comes from reporting, either the NIGAD series, the uh, Epstein series and the Miami Herald without that sort of work. Uh, and the prosecutors will tell you this, that these cases don't move forward. And, and sometimes the legal system, lawyers, law firms like, like Lisa's and others, um, need to work hand in hand with the media to expose this stuff, because otherwise it stays that dirty little secret. And if people have money and they have the sense of impunity, it will continue. Well put. Is there anything you would like to say in conclusion, either of you? Would you like to tell the viewers where they can find you and support you online? I'm at uh, Chris Hansen on Twitter, official Chris Hansen on Instagram. Have a seat with Chris Hansen on YouTube. Predators I've Caught uh, podcast on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your your podcasts. And Discovery Plus right now with Onision Online, speaking of bullying and sexual impropriety, and uh, unseemly the Peter Nygaard investigation. How about you, Lisa? And Lisa Hobble with the Hobble Law Firm. We are on Twitter at the Hobble Law Firm. We are on Facebook at the same and www.hobblelaw.com. I'd be happy to speak to anybody. Brilliant. Absolutely appreciate you guys um, coming back on the show and keeping us updated on this important case. It's harrowing and dark stuff, but like both you guys said, by shining a light on it, hopefully that is the way to you know eliminate this stuff or minimize it at best so thanks again for coming on good luck in what you're doing and if you know if there's any more breaking news or anything um would love to reach out and see if you guys will be available in the future so have a great rest of your wednesday thank you thanks thank you. appreciate it Cheers. thank you bye bye
Yeah, wow. What two powerful warriors in the war against super predators. Absolutely, you know, been so generous with the time. I think Chris has been on three times now. Lisa has been on twice. Her colleague has been on. Um, for them to just give that, that much time, they really deserve our support. So please go down, click on the links, let them know you came from here. When people know you come from here, then they, they actually see the follow through from doing these interviews and it incentivizes them to come back on. And, you know, we're all just on this same mission together to expose, take down the super predators, protect the kids, protect the vulnerable people. And it's great that the platform that we have built is uniting all these frontline warriors on our mission end the war on drugs take all those resources go after the bloody predators hello mark hello sean hey thanks for joining us this evening thanks for the invitation whereabouts in the world are you uh vancouver british columbia and is it locked down or has it been eased um, our province isn't as locked down as some of the other provinces. Um, no dining in restaurants and that sort of thing. You're not supposed to travel, but, um, other things are, are sort of happening. Um, but Ontario is a big province in Canada and that's really locked down right now. Yeah. They're slowly letting us out of our cages here in the UK. Yeah. So you've done some very important work then. And it ties into our philosophy about drug policy. Would you like to explain to the viewers a little bit about yourself and what led to this work? Uh, sure. I'm uh, an infectious disease doctor by training, and uh, my my career really started at the beginning of the HIV epidemic. And I got quite involved in uh, HIV prevention and treatment work. And I lived in Africa for a few years and uh, worked in with uh activists in the in the gay men's movement and then um about 20 years ago i moved to vancouver and started working with uh with drug use uh issues in uh, in vancouver and uh and hiv was the prime uh concern at that time and uh i got into harm reduction and prevention and started doing research in that area and uh i've really just had a trajectory in in harm reduction so um the at the five years ago or so, I was the head of the British Columbia Center for Disease Control, which is sort of the public health agency for the province. And uh, that's when the overdose numbers started rising. Um, and uh, since the last five years, I've really been focusing on uh, trying to prevent overdoses, but have really come to the conclusion with a poison street drug market that uh, it's really all to do with drug policy and we really need to uh, decriminalize, blow up the whole system right now. Uh, people are just needlessly dying and uh, we blame the drugs, but um, most of it's due to uh, insane drug policy that just continues to punish people for, for using substances. Um, and driving them into desperate situations and uh and prohibition has led to uh a really toxic drug supply with fentanyl and carfentanil being the main street drug right now and uh people are, are dying 
very uh, very often. Five people in the province of British Columbia die a day right now. So it's uh, it's outrageous the way uh, we're allowing this to happen. All right, let's go over this a bit more slowly then. I'm going to vastly yeah. <laughs> simplify it. Yeah. So drugs are bad. Therefore, yeah. we shall make drugs illegal. Therefore, people will stop taking them and society will be vastly improved. What went wrong with that idea? <laughs> well, for most people uh, that are using them consistently, drugs are the answer, not really the problem. Um, people you know, rely on these drugs. Um, the vast majority of people that I deal with anyways uh, are using them for reasons of uh, uh, trauma and, uh, and other terrible events that's happened to them in their lives. And, uh, and they've turned to uh, substances and um, and we shouldn't uh, punish the people that are already the most punished. <laughs> and so it's a pretty bizarre idea. And if we thought that um, increasing punishment was going to uh, stop people from using drugs, I mean, we sh we sh there's, there's hardly any examples, even one person I've ever met <laughs> that, that uh, has done that. And people live under outrageous uh, uh, penalties for uh, basically using you know, plants and other substances. It's, it's, we've really created a, uh, an outrageous situation. And when you think about other ways to do it, people would think you're kind of radical. You know, I've been involved in supervised injection sites and needle exchanges and now safe supply programs. And I just look at them and say, well, do you know what you're doing right now? It's pretty outrageous. <laughs> like what I'm suggesting is uh, like not nearly as crazy as what you are doing right now. So, um, yeah, it just it's turned into a disaster, and it, it's getting worse before our eyes. Like the, you know, it's uh, it, it's worse now than it's ever been since I've been doing this work. So, can we ever stop humans from taking drugs? And if not, shouldn't the goal be the minimization of harm? Yeah. I mean, it's so obvious that that's uh, the way we do it. I mean, you know, we've arbitrarily picked on certain drugs as being way worse than other drugs. And uh, um, alcohol, you know, I think alcohol is a great example in our society where the same people who are uh, the heavy handed around uh, um, heroin, cocaine, crystal meth use uh, are happily seen in pictures and bars and drinking their scotch and like so it's a, just such an arbitrary decision that people have made and uh it's uh it's just so hypocritical and that people do do like using substances and should have the opportunity to use them if they so wish so the most used drug in the world is cannabis and at the peak of the war on drugs we had almost a million arrests a year in america for cannabis possession there was a big movement to fill the private prisons, all these contracts coming in surrounding that. You just touched on the alcohol thing there. What gives people who drink alcohol, pop prescription pills, smoke cigarettes, the right to mass incarcerate low-level users of drugs they have deemed illegal? Isn't that just moral relativism? Sure is. And it gets really down to also just terrible inequality and discrimination against people who generally are are on the poor end of things. And um, 
really have have no voice. So we just continue to punish people really for their poverty. And we tie in drugs, um, all gets all gets mangled into uh, homelessness and poverty and criminality and mental illness. And we just kind of lump that all together. And the easiest thing to focus on is drugs. So people um, basically, you know, in my experience in Vancouver are being uh, punished for poverty and uh, and trauma and things that they uh, um, really have not much control of. And drugs are just kind of something that they do, but uh, that's what we tend to focus on and, and penalize them for. So my best education in addiction was living with prisoners for almost six years in the Arizona state system, um, more than half of whom were injecting heroin, more um, of half of that category had hepatitis C. And, you know, growing up as a kid, I was taught that a drug addict is someone who lives under a bridge, goes out stealing cars, shoplifting to finance this um, heinous activity. But once I heard the sad stories, they were thrown away as kids, molested, some kind of childhood trauma, never been given the tools to deal with it by the government or doctors or any other professionals. And they were self-medicating on this drug that was so strong, it, it, it takes them away from that pain. Is that what you found when you were meeting people with HIV, hepatitis, and um people who were perhaps in in the deep end of drug use yeah the stories um you know i've le- i've listened to and uh you know being a physician i can ask people questions that i'd like to uh, that that i want and they usually answer you so i used to spend my you know hiv consultation time um, really just talking about drug use and uh and and the stories of how people started and why they started and uh although there's you know a million different stories uh it's all united by uh, some tragedy or some terrible thing that's really happened to them or the, uh, you know a, a very uh, poor hand they've been dealt and uh and drugs were something that they turned to for uh for comfort and solace and as you say self medication and uh things spiraled and when you live in a and you live in a criminalized prohibition society um it doesn't take long before uh that comfort you're feeling with the drugs turns into a horrendous nightmare where you're running from police and you're in and out of jail and you don't have any money and you don't have any health care and you've lost all your friends. I mean, it's really is a, a terrible spiral for people to get into. And we've basically offered them no outs other than abstinence. So most of the programs that we still um, fund and uh, people are making billions of dollars on uh, on their on their treatments um, most of them in Canada are still 12-step programs abstinence based uh, if you uh, you know if you to get into our programs you have to stop using drugs well that's the whole issue at the beginning so we had sort of have it upside down like why would that be the first thing that you're supposed to do to get into your program? Uh, that's probably the last thing you want to do. Do you want to allow people to deal with the, the things they're they're trying to deal with? Um, they can do much better for the most part if they're given those supports and uh, letting go of their drug use would probably be the uh, icing on the cake after they've uh, figured out everything else. But somehow we've upside downed it and said, oh, okay, stop using drugs and then we'll try and help you with your problems. And for most people that just does not work. 
I saw people fight for years in the court system to get the treatment for hepatitis C, to get the prison to pay for it. And then the prison would say, okay, you've, you know, you finally won this legal battle and we will give it you. But there's one requirement and that is you stop taking the drugs. And some of those people are so addicted, they choose to keep taking the drugs and die rather than get that treatment that they'd, they'd fought for in the legal process. It's really sad. Yeah. Well, HIV was even more, you know, deadly early on. And again, people, um, when I started this, uh, when new drugs, effective drugs came on in the mid nineties, um, most people who use drugs were denied access to those because they figured that, uh, you, uh, they wouldn't be able to take them and, you know, all these terrible excuses, but it was, uh, hugely discriminating and, and people, uh, you know, they didn't really make the choice, but, um, they were not able to be abstinence to qualify for certain programs. And that's the same with hepatitis C. And I, I spent, you know, I was really uh, focusing on hepatitis C for a couple of years and really tried to promote uh, people to get on a treatment and um, people did really well, like you know, whether they continue to use drugs or not, uh, it was secondary. And the other thing people don't understand when, um, people do care, like they, they don't want to get sick and die for the most part. And uh, if given the right opportunities, people, people will latch on to, uh, you know, to care and supports and housing and these kind of things. But we've set up such incredible barriers, mostly abstinence, uh, that a lot of people don't, aren't able to uh, take that up. And uh, you, we live in a society in Canada, that, especially British Columbia, where there's you know, some idea that people need housing, that people need uh, care and treatment, there's free medical care. I mean, it's a kind of the building blocks are there to help people, but then we put in this abstinence requirement um, and they live in a police state and they're chased by police all the time. And so we've, we've set up obstacles for access that are uh, insurmountable for uh, the majority of people. So you talked about the spiral there. It seems that as the addiction requires more usage more funds are required and this leads to for some people an escalation of criminality to finance that armed robberies i've interviewed numerous uh, people who were involved in armed robberies to finance drug addictions the cost to the taxpayer are astronomical once it reaches that level so you would wonder why isn't the government going addressing the root cause is there a, a financial um disincentive or political disincentive for them to address the root causes you know kids uh come out of homes where they're getting abused and they go to care homes we've had guests on who've said the care homes pimp them out so the situations seem to just get exacerbated at a young age that then is imprinted in them there's no one they could trust not got the tools to deal with this drugs and criminality are the only option how can we stop that at the root well i mean i think the three things that we're really pushing in there there's maybe an opportunity in canada and british columbia especially because of the catastrophic number of people that are dying so there is some public awareness that this is just outrageous more people have died in british columbia from overdoses this year than covid I mean, so there's, um, you know, so much emphasis on, on, on COVID. We're doing everything we can to do that. But uh, more people are dying of overdoses right now. More people are 
in the prison system right now than ever. Um, so I think to break that cycle, the three things that we're really promoting here is a safe su regulated supply of drugs. So uh, people won't overdose if uh, they're given um, a, a known quantity of uh, whether it be uh, hydromorphone or heroin or or whatever drugs they're using, we should be offering people a, a regulated, safe supply. The second thing is decriminalization. So it's the idea that people have to live under bridges that are running from police and are in and out of jail. I mean, it's ridiculous. And it, there, as you say, there is some vested interest in keeping that industry alive, I think. And then the whole concept of defunding the police, which is a you know, kind of a third rail issue, you know, for po political parties and things. But I mean, um, it, whether you call it defunding or deep, you know, or, or redeploying or doing something different, but uh, spending all this money on a police state to chase, you know, people living in poverty and jacking up people on the street that have nothing except a little bit of drugs in their pocket seem to be outrageous waste of our money and uh, why we would ever do that. I mean, I could walk down the downtown area of Vancouver now and, and I'd be sure in the next half hour to see a police cruiser with five armed policemen uh, standing around somebody on the sidewalk who living out of a shopping cart. Like, why are we doing that? Like what that person is, uh, clearly not doing well um, for themselves and they should be in a better position. But uh, having having police handle that is makes absolutely no sense. So we really need to change our funding model for drugs and uh, it just doesn't do any good. And fentanyl, which is killing people right now, is uh, the textbook example of prohibition. So heroin became too expensive and difficult to import from Afghanistan. Vancouver, you know, eight years ago used to have a very steady supply of high quality white heroin that came from Afghanistan. And somehow um, whoever was uh, organizing that decided that it was too expensive or too risky or whatever happened, fentanyl, uh, uh, you know, um, a manufactured opioid was much easier and cheaper to, uh, to sell. And that's taken over the whole market. People don't know what to do with it because it's so potent and they're mixing it up in all kinds of very reckless ways. And uh, people don't know what they're taking now. So they're dying. Um, I dream of the days when the good old days of, fent of heroin, when it was available, people weren't overdosing much on heroin. They knew what they were getting. They get it in a regular supply and uh, they were okay as far as overdosing goes. But now uh, it's all hell's broken loose with uh with what the drugs are on the street right now. Yeah, just to hear you say that, I, I, you know, wishing for the good old days of heroin, that is absolutely mind-blowing. And it's a function of drug policy that it's only going to get worse. So what do we need? Just worldwide death and destruction to come to a point where the government is going to reverse this stuff. But going back to something you said earlier then about the re-employment uh, of police resources. So I'm a mem um, associate member of LEAP, which are cops, prosecutors, judges who do brilliant work. And they say, yeah, we joined the cops, you know, to put the bad guys away. And I watched, I think it was Peter Christ, a LEAP uh, member. He said, the purpose of police is to arrest person A who's harming person B. And that's how crime has been defined for millennia. Robbery, rape, theft. And then all of a sudden, 
they're telling us, you know, go out, infiltrate a student group, get them supporting smoking weed and arrest them all at the end of the month so we can make our arrest quotas. Yeah. If you arrest someone smoking weed, who are they hurting? They're not raping, murdering, robbing somebody. If anything, perhaps they're harming themselves. And again, that goes back to moral relativism. So if people are watching this, um, please support Leap and, and, and the brilliant work they're doing. Are you, are you familiar with Leap, Mark? Yep. Yep. It's, uh, yeah, I know I've met, met people from Seattle. It's uh, um, our neighbor city. So, yeah, we, we have you know, the Vancouver Police Department would tell you that they're uh, a little bit uh, – ahead of the curve they're not really out to get people smoking weed and using drugs and small possession and things but it, the whole system the whole drug policy system is based on enforcement so it, it needs to it can't just be little incremental changes that you know we won't jack you up if we're carrying a little bit of cocaine or something but it's got to be much great much larger than that and you know the people that they're targeting are the people in our society that are the you know, the most vulnerable and the most traumatized people it just uh, really we've turned it upside down and the people we should be really helping the most we're punishing and uh if you take somebody who's been through so much trauma and mistrust and put them in and out of jail as if that's going to help them like that that's kind of the worst possible thing you can do to somebody who's already traumatized and dependent on drugs is to throw them in a jail cell jail cell every six months and that's what it is revolving for people you know everybody i deal with has a criminal record and and that just ruins their you know potentially ruins their lives too you know they you know where do you go from there so um, we really need to blow up the whole system um and uh redeploy the way we're doing it with uh uh, with drugs. And as you say, there's so much entrenched thinking about this and the public is somehow duped into believing that if somehow we loosened up on our drug laws that we'd all turn turn to heroin and cocaine and the society would just fall apart and all our youth would be <laughs> drug zombies or something. I mean, it, it just doesn't work that way. And uh, the, if I give people, I'm giving people drugs right now in a in a study, a safe supply study. So I have a machine, a biometric machine that gives people hydromorphone pills, and um, it's just expanding now. And uh, hopefully, it will kind of push the the agenda a bit on this safe supply idea. But everybody on the program has done way better. They don't have to get up in the morning, drug sick, and go and. Um, find money somehow for through various means, whether it's sex or petty crime and things, they just come to the machine, get their drugs, and then they can look at their day totally different. They don't have that, that uh, hassle. And um, pretty much everybody the you know, 25 or so people on the program uh, use way less drugs, street drugs. Uh, they're way, way better off. They feel way better. Um, some are now working. I mean, it, it just, it's just so obvious that uh, driving people into the criminal elm, element to get their medication is, uh, is so counterproductive. And if we could just uh, break that cycle for people, um, there's a lot of opportunity that people could do way better. So we've got a few minutes left. I'm just going to ask the viewers if they'd like to post any questions, either in the chat or in the question box. While we wait for those to come in, Mark, um, what about the wall of money that benefits from the status quo? Just one example would be the private prisons contracts in the tens of billions a year right now. And you've got political donations in the multi-millions to both 
of the major parties in America. Uh, just using that con country as an example, um, you know, the, the, the lobbying for tighter laws, lobbying for you know drug policy to to remain reactionary. What's your thoughts on that? Well, it's an interesting foil. Can Canada would would say we don't have a private uh, in criminal system that um, the jails are you know um, government run. I think a lot of the services in the jails have become privatized, um, so there is a lot of uh, private money there. Um, so yeah, that status quo. There's a lot of reasons to keep that system going. So a lot of people are benefiting from it. And as far as a political stance goes, uh, tough on drugs it is a winner. And people always put it back to the pe young people. So it's always protecting our youth. You know, we don't want to have any more people using these drugs where there's hundreds of thousands, millions of people already using them. So basically that attitude saying, uh, we don't care about people who are already using the drugs. We hope they just go away and die. Um, we really want to focus on not letting our young people get into drugs, um, which clearly doesn't work. But politically, that's a fairly safe stance to take in uh, in Canada and the United States. So why would you, any politician who's talking about decriminalization or easing laws of drugs, taking a big chance? Um, I mean, cannabis is a great example where things have flipped quite quickly. So, you know, people 10 years ago might not have thought we'd be this, uh, where we are now with cannabis. So it, it can happen. Um, but um, uh, for these other drugs, it's still society's very entrenched into these are killer drugs. They're going to kill our youth. We have to stop them from being uh, used. And um, it's a political winner um, stance to take. Yeah, and cannabis got some of the biggest uh, cannabis companies in the Canada's cannabis yeah. companies. This is like a, a tongue twister, isn't it? Got some of yeah. the biggest ones in the world right now. And, uh -oh. and they're ironically, some of them are headed up by ex-law enforcement and politicians. They're the main, uh, they're the main drivers of this. One of the biggest jerks we ever had was a uh, the chief of police in the Toronto, and uh, he was very tough on cannabis. And now he's one of the heads of a big cannabis company. So, <laughs> Which one's that? Um, I don't know what I don't know what company it is actually, but uh, yeah. We've just got time for one question, then it's coming from Momzilla. Um, regarding the 12-step program in Canada, um, should there be a separation of church and state in funding these programs? Uh, for sure. I mean, I mean, a lot of these programs, whether they're uh, based faith-based or not faith-based, are still uh, very poor. Their outcomes are very poor. They're not very evaluated. People are spending billions of dollars to get keep them propped up and they need to be uh really evaluated and uh and you know for what and uh called out for what they are <laughs> okay mark huge yeah. thank you for coming on um yeah. we're gonna have all your links below this video where can people find you was your preferred method of people reaching out to you yeah well i'm on i'm fairly active on twitter so it's uh, uh dr m tyndall um on my twitter account and uh yeah, I guess that's the probably the best way to reach me. And uh, I have a, a, a TED talk that talks about um, harm reduction that uh, is now a couple of years old, but uh, it's it's it might be interesting to some people. I'll certainly be watching that. Yeah.
All right, huge thank you for coming on. Um, okay. You know, c- congratulations on the work that you're doing, and I wish you much success going okay, forward. Thanks. Cheers, Mark. Thank you. Thanks Take a lot. Care. Okay, bye-bye. 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 What a great guy, you know. Uh, it's people like that we need all over the world pushing for a change in government policy that is absolutely not working. Hello. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Huge Hello. thank you for coming on, guys. Hi. I'm good. I thought you were here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, some of my viewers uh, are familiar with Sandra. <laughs> some of my viewers are familiar with Sandra from the podcast we did. And Taj, would you like to introduce yourself, please, and just tell us a little bit about you? About you. Uh, my name is Taj. Um, I manage um, Sarah Adams, who is um, Max's uh, partner, was Max's partner. Um, I also worked on the, the Basis Project back in 2015, 2016, and was helping with the conference that uh, Max was going to be speaking at in uh, 2016. So, Sandra, what was your relationship with Max and... What was Max's mission? What was he about for people who are not familiar with him? Uh, well, the most important thing is that Max was uh, known for his conspiracy research. And uh, yeah, I do understand that there are a lot of people that do not know him still. Uh, but anyone involved in the UFO disclosure and conspiracy research in UK, at least, uh, do know Max, essentially. And uh, I'm not quite sure when Max started uh, this journey, but one of the first uh, interviews that I saw with him was with the Project Camelot, and he was with his... uh, friend James Casbolt. So if you haven't heard of Max Spears, maybe a lot of people have heard uh, James Casbolt. And uh, James Casbolt looked very much like Max. They they looked really familiar. And uh, the myth, well, not the myth. Um, I don't know why Max never talked about this himself. Uh, th- there were a lot of people putting that a stamp on him, this super soldier stamp, which is, in my opinion, a marketing uh, theme. Uh, he was part of a, a group of children, uh, apparently in Canada. There was 40 children, part of that group, and majority of them died along the line due to trauma. Uh, due to trauma that was going on, and it was a controlled uh, mind control project involving these children, and James Casbolt and Max Spears were involved in that. And uh, this is really important. We need to start from the beginning, you know. Uh, you know, we, we don't want to jump ahead of, of uh, his death events. And uh, basically, majority of the kids died, but they didn't die during that program. They died sort of along the line. Uh, A lot of them developed addiction problems due to the psychological trauma, and a lot of them got in accidents. And and a lot of those deaths, and what I've understood, were natural causes during their own life. And then James and uh, Max came about, and they started talking about uh, these things. But uh, their initial interviews were a lot about 
uh, you know, political uh, problems and etc. But later, which was the Hampstead Heath case and uh, the pedophilia rings in UK and US. And um, the speculation is that he was gonna then put this in his book that he was getting help with from Monica Duval at the place where he died in Poland, but we're not gonna get into that today. So Max, yes, died in Poland at a lady's uh, place called Monica Duval, who was a publisher. And she worked with people like uh, Stuart Swordlow, a very big name in the Montauk Project, and uh, other other UFO and and you know all kinds of stuff. Uh, and and uh, there's there's just uh, too much to say. So Max Spears was essentially known for that, but just later on in his life, he started talking about the the child abuse and these rings, and that is when he died, which is a big question now. This sounds like a familiar theme then. You're saying that Max was about to expose perhaps elite pedophiles. He had a book coming out and then he got snuffed out. Do, do you second that, Taj? Uh, yeah, so I was conversing with uh, Max in 2016 in the months before he was supposed to appear at the conference in August. So um, I was communicating with him and... Uh, back and forth, and I had an idea that he was going to be talking um, about things like Hampstead. He was going to name certain, I guess, celebrities or famous people that he had been uh, told were involved in, you know, paedophile activity and that type of thing. I won't name any of the people that I know, but uh, one of them was a musician who died six months after uh, Max died around Christmas 2016, um, quite a famous musician. Another was a politician, and another is a, a comedian, a British comedian who is also an actor. Is still, are we allowed to say these names? <laughs> no, we're not. We're not allowed to say um, those names, and I've, I've had no, um, legal legal issues pertaining to this as well. So I won't say the names, but yeah. what I what I really want to get into is like the time around when uh, Max died, and uh, a lot of the questions around uh, what happened to him, especially. Um, when he was doing that last interview, where I don't know if anyone's uh, watched his last interview, but it was audio only. He had problems breathing, and he literally sounded like he was dying during the um, the interview. And there's questions around when that was recorded. It was supposed to have been recorded about four days before he died, but it could well have been recorded on the day he died. And as far as the day he died is, goes, there's a lot of questions surrounding that as well as to how he died. Uh, Monica's um involvement as far as supplying him with prescription drugs which he admitted to in the inquest which was in uh, january 2019 she gave a, st a statement to the coroner in the uk that she had uh, while they were on holiday in cyprus about two weeks before he died that she supplied him with the entire pharmacy's um supply of xanax which was about 10 packets um that was a contributing factor to his death. He died of pneumonia and an overdose of a mixture of Xanax and oxycodone. Um, Monica's never been um, questioned about this as far as you know why she supplied him um, these drugs. Um, also, the day that he died, um, she called her doctor before she called anybody else, her personal doctor who attended. 
maybe talk about these yet. Just uh, okay, yeah. Um, Are you saying it was an inside job? Um, I'm, I don't know if it was an inside job, but it, there's a lot of questions and things have been covered up, like stories have changed, um, you know, several times from the Polish side anyway. So they've given one story and then they've changed their story and they've changed the story again. So if there's only one story, then why does it keep, you know, changing? So that's why I would question, um, well, the, you know, I'm not saying that, uh, I would say that there, there are people who have, who have lied about it as far as in the, the Polish side, um, specifically Monica, but her, because her story's changed, she's also disappeared. Um, nobody knows where she is or what she's doing. I've done my own sort of investigation into her after Max died, and there's questions about her business um, and her financial situation when uh, when Max passed away that um, could you know, cause you to doubt as to her involvement in, uh, in his death. Very serious question for you, Sandra. Are you a super soldier? No, I am not. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> right, that's the thing now. So, uh, it, because there's not enough time, so we just want to keyword the the issue that we are really concerned about. People are having court cases over a few hundred pounds uh, property losses, and there's never been a normal court case over a man who died on a couch, uh, and all the people involved have disappeared. So, who has disappeared? Monica Duval, Alec. Who recorded the last interview that has over a half a million views and now i've seen that these people have popped up here and there alec etc and there's never been a court case so we wanted i wanted to know what is going on and unfortunately why i never came forward forward was i received a phone call that was basically a death threat to me saying to me that if I am going to go and see Max, I better watch out or I'm going to get my pretty little nose hurt. Do you understand? And then the phone was put down in my face. And that was while I was booking my ticket to go and uh, just go see a friend who was very depressed. So they were trying to label him as a junk, a junkie that is uh, stated in the daily and in the guard uh, during the inquest, all these uh, mainstream uh, newspapers were covering it and they labeled him as a junkie, but the junkie was good enough to be placed in front of a camera during a recording where he said, it hurts here, I cannot breathe. So people are lying. He was a junkie during report. Oh my God, he was out of control. But yet he was good enough to be placed in front of a camera to be recorded, which is still public and up now. And the people involved have mixed up all the important factors that me and Taj are going to get into, dates and etc. manipulated everything, which is indicating that they deliberately did this. This was not an accident. It was organized and as well other nuances that are actually indicating that this was a ritual, okay? And this was a negative satanic ritual in my humble opinion. I started this um, sort of research thinking that it was some hippie uh, ayahuasca trip. Let's get Max really high, give him all this axagan and a little other cocktail and let's mimic a ayahuasca trip and get this information and record it and then we can you know 
uh, get some very cool spiritual information. That is what I initially thought. But the more I think about it, combined with that phone call that I got, people knew that he was going to be killed. And it now is a serious thing, in my opinion. I've seen the notes. There are names there. No one recognizes these na names. We can discuss that in the future, not today. And there is one name there that was already brought up in the media, a 75-year-old man who was pedophile. Other kids were coming forward. They found him dead in his bed at 75. He was a manager at a childcare facility. And Max had all these notes. And he had the name of the caller who gave me the death threat. Wow. What is the story of the toxic green vomit? And was that ever chemically analyzed? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it was. It was probably um, because he died of pneumonia. It was probably coughing up um, congealed blood from his lungs. Um, I think that's all in the uh, the coroner's report. I don't remember the specifics about what the actual black um, black liquid was, but I believe it was uh, blood. He was coughing up congealed blood, vomiting blood, and you know. So that's I can that. Yeah. Uh, so basically now I remembered something before this recording, actually during these weeks, there was a man who owned a cacao farm in Ghana who was politically involved. And uh, there were a lot of millions involved for this uh, hundreds of acres of cacao land they owned. And he had the same thing. He was vomiting black fluid and they found him dead at home. And then they labeled him as an alcoholic. So uh, then it turned out that he was poisoned and then the paperwork for the farming were signed over. And then I was like, okay, this happened to Max as well. So this was some serious, uh, serious uh, cocktail that they gave him that he would vomit. It was a tea-like color described in the inquest. It was not black, but tea color now when I re-looked at the inquest. People were describing it was like, yeah, it was blood and it was, it, that doesn't really come from just anything. That is serious injury and it's, uh, it's serious poisoning. Wow, that is absolutely mind-blowing. You mentioned that people associated with Max, mysterious things had happened to them. Could you expand on that? I'll just say a couple of words and then Tosh, if you don't mind, Tosh. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, so I went to look at this man who recorded uh, Max during this audio. And uh, this man is out loose and he's still giving these spiritual lectures. Now, just briefly, this is the level of corruption we are dealing with. Max died at this woman's place. The ambulance was uh, not called on time. The police arrived, and then the ambulance was sent away. We're going to elaborate on that in the future. So this is the level of cover-up that we're dealing with, that they were able to send even the ambulance away. They didn't even sort of uh, do anything. Um, and... Um, Uh, how am I going to put this? Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to jump into the future, but uh, no one has seen Monica Duval. We need to emphasize that for the people that don't know this case. So Monica Duval was the woman who was hosting, 
And uh, then the main journalist who was covering this in the BBC is as well been now covering up details, in my humble opinion. And the phone call came from this individual. So now there is a serious, serious thing going on. Uh, if you want to add to that, Taj, I need a little bit to think, how am I going to approach this? Yeah, I think um, uh, most of the questions around uh, the death of Max Spears, um, I mean, a lot of it's been publicized in mainstream media, but a lot of it, the mainstream media have got the facts wrong, got dates wrong and, and things like that. So what we're, the questions we're asking are, um, what happened on the day that uh, Max died? Because you know things like the ambulance was sent away. Uh, she called the doctor instead of calling the police and ambulance. That delayed everything. But as far as I know, by the time the doctor got there, the, the Max was already dead. There's nothing that um, the doctor could have done. In fact, it was the doctor who called the police because uh, Monica wouldn't let him leave because she wanted him to keep working on Max. But it was obvious that he'd been dead for a while. And there's no point. But she was hysterical and wouldn't let him leave. So the doctor called the police and the ambulance arrived for some reason. We still don't know. The ambulance was sent away. The police were sent away. And then his body was left there overnight, um, which is not normal at all anywhere, especially Poland, to leave a dead body after the police and the ambulance have already visited the home. And to just leave the body there is not normal. Um, and the body was and taken away the next day. Um, you have to remember this was the middle of summer, it was July. The body was left overnight, so you can imagine like the next day, you know, I mean, you know, what the body would have been like when the, when it was picked up. So um, this all leads to, you know, questions about Monica's involvement. Um, the, the, you know, there was a, I don't know if we want to get into the notes that the doctor wrote right now, but it was altered, it was changed, that was at the inquest. Uh, the doctor wrote something when he left. He left. It's not really a death certificate. It's just a note that they hand to the police, and it was altered. It was changed. So there's questions about that. Question about him being left overnight. Um, you know the prescription drugs that he was taking. Where was he getting them from? There's also a head wound that we've. I've seen a picture of his body uh, where it shows a head wound. No one's questioned about that. There's nothing in. Uh, the coroner's report about it, probably because by the time the body got back to the UK, it was pretty much um, degraded to an extent where you couldn't see any marks. Um, as far as I know, the body was completely black by the time it arrived in the UK. Um, and his mother couldn't even identify um, the body. His sister had to um, identify the body simply from facial features because they couldn't recognise the face even. Bloody hell. Yeah, they said that it was this a drowning victim. Did it drown? The yeah. like, more he said, did this person drown? They said, what do you mean? He said he looks exactly like he's drowned underwater. He's been placed underwater. Yeah, he, Vanessa called the um, the Vanessa called the um, I think it was the morgue in the UK when the body arrived, and she was speaking to them, and they uh, they just made a comment like, oh, he drowned, didn't he? And Vanessa was surprised, um, what, you know, and asked him, what do you mean he drowned? Because the body looks like a drowning victim. That's what the morgue um, told her. It was bloated and because um, obviously they've seen many drowning victims. They know what a drowning victim looks like. So Vanessa was surprised to hear that and uh, doesn't still doesn't know 
why they thought that um, when the coroner's report says that he died of pneumonia. Which is... I can't imagine what his mother must have gone through then with that. Exactly, yeah. I mean, she's been through hell pretty much. And even um, last year, she lost her daughter as well. Uh, Max's sister died last year um, to COVID. Mm. So, yeah, it's been very difficult for her. And, you know, I mean, I've interviewed her a couple of times about uh, the death of Max Spears, and we've gone through every single detail, every question, and she's still... I think, you know, she still has a lot of questions which we're trying to find answers to, really. So I'm going to ask the viewers then if they've got any questions for you guys because we're down to the last 10 minutes. But I want to just point out that I have this book right here. <laughs> yeah. Sandra's book. Where can people get this book now, Sandra? It's on Amazon. And, uh, yeah, it's on Amazon. Um Pretty, pretty straightforward, <laughs> but um, I'm just, uh, I just wanted to highlight as well about Max that when people go now, just trying to get to know him, that the audio, uh, audio, uh, they're saying that he was outdoors jumping on a trampoline, which is a very interesting factors that we're going to unfold in the next coming. This is it. The dates were mixed up. So if you go now listen to this audio, don't be fooled that they're saying that he was tired, he had to go jump on a trampoline. There was actually, everything has been manipulated and mixed up because he was actually in, indoors. Indoors. And um, uh, his uh, computer, everything were wiped out. Everything was wiped out conveniently. They said that the mm -hmm. phone uh, fell in the bath and... Um, and and uh, got into water, and the computer was wiped out. Everything was wiped out. All the evidence, and, and that's it. You got a yeah. question? You got a question here from Kelly. Who yeah. do you believe silenced him or disappeared him? Um. um well, the people who obviously the people who he was staying with, Monica. Um, there are links to uh, Monica was working with Stuart Swerdlow. I don't know if anybody knows or heard of Stuart Swerdlow, but um, he's, he has relations in um, what was the FSB, um, KGB, whatever you want to call it. Um, so there are links there. I mean, it's hard to say. I think it was some kind of, you know, I don't know what you would call it, satanic or um, group, really. I mean, anyone who is involved in, like, doing rituals and killing people and... Um, sacrifice i mean that's another thing we haven't talked about vanessa was sent a book about so so monica, monica was supposed to send the phone back and the sim card and she forgot the sim card and when she sent the sim card back she, it was inside a book um, about human sacrifice wow. and that's almost like you know um i thought she was like maybe taunting her in a way or even mocking uh max's death um but to send the mother of someone who's just died a book about human sacrifice you know pretty sick you ask me yeah that that was uh wow well wow, it is it is about the how to how to sacrifice and you know and these people are loose and no one has had a court case and this is uh honestly if anyone's in the chat room and has any legal background i don't know you're welcome to contact me um as well if you want to sort of uh, get to know um 
this case, we have done a really thorough, uh, like, uh, hypotheses as well. You can see it on my channel, uh, the new one, uh, because the previous channel mine was taken away with a very special ship, you know, it was called the Sensor, and it was taken away. So my last channel is the new channel. You can see these presentations, and uh, and then next time we can unfold these. So you've been asked by Matthew Steeples, what do either of you feel about the views of Max's girlfriend? Which, which views are you talking about? Matthew, if you could put <laughs> those views in the chat while Matthew's doing that, you have another question come in here, and that is, do either of you feel fear for your safety that's from kelly um not really i mean it's been nearly five years right now so if they were going to do anything to me they would have uh, probably done it by now but um the thing is that a lot of it's been um you know after the inquest in 2019 everything just went quiet and there's been like you know youtube videos and things like that about it but most of the people um who've done youtube videos are going by what they read online and on the mainstream media and even a lot of the stuff in the alternative media is not accurate um i mean i've spoken to sarah his uh, girlfriend and vanessa on you know many occasions you know so i know a lot of the details about um the day he died and uh, what was going on in the weeks and months before he died and everything that happened afterwards as well so um yeah We've just posted a link to Sandra's new YouTube channel in the chat and all of the links to both of the guests will be in the description box below this video. So please support the work. Um, people here are saying it would be interesting to hear Maxie's mum's story. Um, w w would she be available? Um, yeah, that's up to Vanessa. Yeah, um... Yeah, I think um, she's done plenty of interviews. There's plenty of interviews. I think there is. Yeah. There's plenty sorry, of interviews. Sorry, there was an echo talk. <laughs> there are some interviews on uh, on YouTube with Vanessa already. So she's already um, done several interviews to give her side of the story already. Um, the quote, quotes have just come in now from Max's girlfriend, from Matthew Steeples. She said, he was terrified he wanted to leave. He wanted to come back to England because we were going to get married and have a baby. He was the love of my life. He rang me secretly because they wouldn't let him talk to me. And he said he was trying to get away from them. He said something demonic is going on. He said he needed to get out and find a church or a holy place. But two days later, he was dead. That's right. Yeah. Um, so Sarah, his girlfriend, was messaging him. And I believe she was probably one of the last people to... Uh, message him on the night before uh, he died um, so I've seen those messages and yeah they were uh, I believe Max was going to go back to England to speak at the conference um, the basis conference they were going to do a, a talk together there um, what was the rest of the uh, something, something demonic is going on he needs to, needed to get out find a church or a holy place yeah I think um I think he did a few interviews with uh, Christine Hart, 
where he spoke about that with a certain individual who he believes uh, was attacking him. I guess I'm, you know, I could say because he's, he's dead now, but he was saying he was being attacked by uh, Michael Aquino, who um, has links to the Church of Satan and also links to the US uh, military uh, psychological warfare. Um, so he did mention him a few times in interviews. So I don't know if that's what they were talking about in that question there. Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion, Sandra? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, are you worried about your safety? Uh, you know, I think that, uh, I don't know. I, you know, Vanessa needs to sort of, um, she needs to think about it. She wants to come forward. Uh, she's already yes, said everything that she had to say. The daughter passed away, left her with four grandchildren. So uh, basically, she's now trying to raise these children. Is there any point to even, you know, get back to it? I, I'm happy to come forward and say about that death threat phone call. I don't know why I stayed quiet. And now when looking into uh, people who did the phone call, they're conducting uh, negative satanic rituals on TikTok, sacrificing animals. And uh, there is definitely uh, sort of uh, some voodoo going on. Okay, let's now, you know, be realistic. Because if they're already sacrificing animals and getting them to elevated state to get adrenochrome, literally, and scratch their eyes out of these animals, then uh, some of these rituals even take place, literally, I, I know, they take place 30 days straight. And uh, I do feel sometimes that there's someone tapping in. Is it going to get face-to-face in the future? But, but one thing is for sure, honestly, this was organized. The more I think about it, and there was a lady who was working with Monica Duval. Uh, Taj has screen, like conversations in the past. Said that the end, and uh, you know, if you think about the level of corruption, we got to emphasize that the ambulance was sent away, they had full control of the scenery, they did whatever they wanted. And yes, she called her own GP to formulate the documents, whatever it was convenient for them. And uh, it was pretty organized. And uh, these kind of people are very patient, they will wait for years to come after you, they will wait for years. Mm-hmm. So people so, uh, are interested. People are interested in your other work, Sandra, and this is just a a sliver of what you've researched. So I'm going to read um, the back of your book for people. So the literature speaks of the current situation in the world and how did we come to this point as a collective? The investigation will lean into great detail about this world's history and mechanisms. Who is ruling us? Where did they come from exactly? And how do they operate? This book will leave the old repetitive follow the money investigations out of the occasion, which never gave the final answers. Instead, it will be putting a far more complex riddle under the loop, looking into the intruder's soul and what they are all about. Who do they represent and worship? And why do they want to control this planet? The literature is composed of two characteristics, novel, female, and mechanisms, male. Whereas all of the information will be presented in a concise format, compressing and presenting more detail within a small space. So if you want to delve into Sandra's work, 
there is the book there is the new youtube channel all those links are provided is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion taj um yeah i mean there's only so much we can talk about in this um uh in this interview we've only just touched on a few points really um there is a lot more to it it goes much deeper you know if you want to have a, a longer conversation about it and we can talk more about specifics um but it's very difficult to just uh get too in depth in uh, in today's show but i think it would be, yeah, it would be better if we can go a bit more deeper on it yeah perhaps um if we if we get everybody in the studio we could do a multi-hour um interview on this subject all right guys thank you for coming on this evening um we're gonna have well, to get I'm going to now, to UK now. When are you, when are you going to come? Okay. All thank right. You, Huge bye. thank you for coming on, guys. I hope and, everybody's enjoyed uh, this. Next two weeks now, looks like. All right. Well, let us know. Huge thank you for coming on. I hope people have enjoyed this. I'm going to sign off for now. Thank you for giving us your time this evening. And I've got loads more questions, so I hope we can do something much longer in the future. So have a great rest of your Wednesday, guys. And thanks again. Cheers. Thanks. Bye -bye. Let's see. Hello, Norman. Evening, Sean. How are you? Hey, jolly good. How about yourself? Got, got this especially, especially for when I talk. Hope you pay So, our favourite royal has been in the news quite a bit since we last spoke. And for people watching this who are not familiar with Norman, Norman has been a regular on the channel with cutting edge royal commentary. He is no royalist. He has exposed Prince Andrew and nefarious other um, deeds committed by the royals over the ages. And he has multiple books out, not just about the royal family, but also about the guy who blew the whistle on the weapons of mass destruction. What was his name again? David Kelly. David Kelly. Dr. David Kelly, yeah, and his, his death. So Norman's links are in the description box if you want to check his books out or support him on his socials or watch him play in his band on YouTube. Yes, there are videos on YouTube of him playing in his band. All right, Norman. So this um, guy, Prince Andrew, has set up the shady company with the Coots worker. What, what's your perspective on this, this news? Well, he never learns, does he? Um, he thinks he can get away with these things all, all the way down the line. He thinks there's, there's something for nothing. And maybe maybe in his life, that's what the lesson has been. You get something for nothing. But, you know, I mean, he needs to retire. He can't retire gracefully. He can, he can retire gracelessly, perhaps, but he can retire. He's got <laughs> enough money. He just he needs to go away and, and, and maybe he should go and join a monastery or something and just try to learn a bit about life and just get some good karma but do you think that ego is superseding money at this point whereby he shows up um he wants to be the admiral well he, he well the way the royal family works is that uh, they they have uh, medals upon medals honors upon honors they don't earn of them of course they don't earn these these uh, honors the decorations apart from andrew to be fair to him was in the falklands war so he deserved to a medal for that but apart from that you know charles for example has got i think it's 38 medals or something he's got i mean he's got he has to choose which medals to wear he's got so many of them he's weighed down i mean he's got 
he's, 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 he's a high admiral or something. He's, he's in charge of the bloody Navy and, and the Royal Air Force and the, and the Army. You know, he's got more medals. If he'd be all, all the more on the ship, the ship would sink. He's got that many medals. And Andrew's the same. And, and this business of um, the, the, these positions come up with the ages. You know, they don't earn anything. But when he gets to 60, apparently, he's supposed to become an admiral. That's what happens when you come 60. I mean, I have to say, I got past 60. I'm not an admiral, but apparently <laughs> you're an admiral when you're 60 in the royal family. So, I mean, but, but because he was in the middle of Jeffrey Epstein and all that business, um, he graciously decided he wouldn't become an admiral at age 60 or the Queen decided for him. But he still wants to be. He's only a vice admiral. I mean, obviously, he's suffering. He's only a vice admiral, this guy now. Um, <laughs> He should have become an admiral at 60. So he still wants to. He still hankers after this business of being an admiral. But, you know, these royal, these royal decorations on us... I don't know how you feel, Sean, but I think the decorations and the honours that are worth having are the ones you earn, the ones you actually achieve by doing something in life. You know, the little old lady who gets people across the room for 50 years outside of school gets an MBE. Well, you know, she's earned it in a way. But, you know, Andrew and these people don't earn anything, but they think they should be entitled to these honours. They should think they come up with the rations. You know, they get a telegram from the Queen when they get to 100. He gets a, he become an admiral when he's 60. That's how they see it. <laughs> I can feel this crown going to my head right now. I might have to put my robe on with it. So what, what is this sliding scale then? Admiral? What, what's above Admiral? What, what else could he... He could become... <laughs> Prince, Philip, Prince Philip was Lord High Admiral. Lord High Admiral. Yes. Is that the that's... top? Is that the top of the military honours? That's the top of the navy, anyway. Of the navy. Yeah, but the serious points on serious, apart from apart from the grotesque, ridiculous nature of these things, which goes back centuries. The serious point is this: that every member of the, role of the armed forces has to take an oath of allegiance to the queen, her heirs, and successors. That's what they do. Not to democracy. Not to the country not to the government, but to the unelected head of state. Now, that may seem to be rather unimportant and frivolous and, and just a bit of a history. But just think back, what would have happened in 1940 if Weber VIII was still on the throne, wearing a crown like yours, no doubt? What would have happened if he'd be still on the throne? Because Edward VIII was a Nazi. We know this, he was a Nazi sympathizer. Now, if he was still on the throne in 1940, and he was conniving. We know he was. When he was off the throne, he was doing it with people to try and reach a deal with, with Hitler. A lot of the establishment was in 1940. The deal they wanted was this. The deal they wanted was you leave the British Empire alone and you can go and invade the Slavic countries. Go and invade Russia and leave us alone in the West and we'll, we'll have a truce with you. That's what Edward VIII wanted. He wanted a deal with the Nazis. He is, after all, the royal family is German, in essence. That's what he wants to do. Now, if Edward VIII in 1940 said to the armed forces who had taken an oath of allegiance to him when he became king, um, lay down your weapons, we're going, to, we're going to have a peace deal with Hitler, and the government had said no, the armed forces would have been morally obliged to follow what the king said. So these oaths of allegiance to the king and the queen are actually rather important. Now, fortunately, he was bundled off the throne. The theory is that, uh, of course, he fell off Mr. Simpson and all this stuff about... Um, laying down his throne for the woman he loved. Of course, some of that was true, but Stanley Baldwin, who was a prime minister in 1936, 37, knew about the sympathies of, uh, of Edward VIII and uh, was actually quite keen to accept this business of Mrs. Simpson being a reason for him abdicating before he was enthroned, by the way, 
it'd be much more difficult had he taken his oath in front of the Archbishop of Canterbury. But before he was enthroned, that could be um, a reason for him disappearing. Now, um, Baldwin could have actually squared um, the, um, the, the, the establishment, could have squared the Commonwealth and countries and the empire to accept Edward VIII and Mrs. Simpson, but he chose not to do so. He chose, in fact, to get rid of them. And, uh, you know, they actually had a discussion. This is in my book, um, of course. And what do you do? Name of the book, quick plug there for it. There's a chapter in there about all this. And uh, we even had a situation where in 1938, 37, 36, Edward VIII on the throne was being bugged by MI5. And that was, that was at the behest of the Prime Minister. And there was a bit of a row about it. The Prime Minister had to square the Home Secretary, he had to square MI5, but they all agreed he had to be, he had to be watched. He wasn't reliable. He was the enemy of the state. And like Norman said, this is detailed way more in his book, which I have read. It's absolutely fascinating, well-researched. And the link to Norman's book is in the description box below this video. So I'd urge people to support what Norman's doing and check his book out. Now, what did you think? So, so of... I'm, feeling I'm, I'm feeling underdressed at the moment. I've got a crack. <laughs> Do you want me to send you a tiara? <laughs> I don't think I want a tiara, no. I'll have a crown. <laughs> All right, so there's a theory then that the whole Oprah interview was timed to take the heat off Prince Andrew and the Epstein case. This theory has been circulating now online. Do you think there's any merit to that? No, to be, to be blunt about it. I think Andrew is... Uh, Andrew is running his own, done his own furrow, and I think he's embarrassing the royal family enormously. I mean, he's great news for me. He's, he's helping sell my book. He's my sales agent out there, pushing my book. So, um, no, I think I think the royal family's probably uh, had enough of Prince Andrew for the time being. And I think the Harry and Meghan thing was driven by Harry and Meghan for their own purposes. I don't think Andrew comes into it. Qu quick plug for my upcoming book, then. If people have gone on my Facebook or Twitter today, you will see draft covers for my upcoming book, Who Killed Epstein, Prince Andrew or Bill Clinton. We have Andrew on the cover right there. And we're just getting feedback right now from people. Let us know which cover you prefer or any of the attributes on either of the covers you prefer as we work towards trying to get it perfected. Appreciate all the feedback that has come in today, hundreds and hundreds of comments on Twitter and, and, and Facebook. So thank you very much, everybody who gave us some input on the cover. Okay, so did you watch Prince Philip's funeral? No. <laughs> well, William and Harry had a chat on the way out. What's your perspective on that? Well, I mean, our, our, Private Eye's very good on this because Private Eye's got someone inside the palace, I think, for their piece called Court Circular. And in addition, this week of Private Eye uh, goes into some of this detail in, in an authoritative way. Look, they didn't have much of a chat, apparently. They didn't chat beforehand. Uh, they had a, a minor chat about pictures on, on Harry's phone about um, his offspring, and that's by and large about it, I think. And the problem is, I think the royal family feel that they can't say anything to Harry at the moment without Harry saying to Meghan, and then Meghan goes and blasts it all over the American press in a kind of distorted way. So they're, they're really careful what they say to Harry. And they don't have a telephone. I mean, obviously, we're doing Zoom and everything these days. They can't have a conversation with them over the internet because they don't know if she's going to be there or not listening. 
and what she'll do with the, with the information. So I think the, 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 compass, the communications are really very limited at the moment because they're wary of um, what might come out of it, how it'll be like distorted. So it's, it's pleasantries, not much else. So in the aftermath of the Oprah interview then, what do you think Meghan's relationship with the royals is right now? Oh, I think it's poisoned. I think, I think the, rightly or wrongly, uh, they blame her for um, Harry being divorced from the royal family, effectively. They blame her for the fact that he's disappeared off to America, uh, and they think she's a malign influence. Now, I'm not saying I agree with that, but what I do know is that the, the royal family does not like powerful women. I mean, the royal family is stuck in the past. Uh, they are not a modern family. They are stuck in the past, and the role of royal women in the Queen, except because she's head of the, she's obviously head of the family, head of the firm. But apart from that, their job is to um, royal women. The job of royal women is to support their man. That's how they see it. This rather old-fashioned way. Princess Diana, when she was um, first married to Charles, was told not to talk in public. She was told her job was to stand there, smile, and simper. You know, and, and obviously Diana was was not that sort of woman. She was independent mind. Uh, she had some strong views, which I some of which I agree with, like campaigning as landmines and so on. And uh, she would not want to didn't want to do that. Equally, Fergie. I mean, Fergie's got her own problems, but Fergie was a, was another woman with her own mind. They don't like these powerful women in the royal family. They want them to you know dress in grey and wear the right colour nail varnish and shut up basically. And Meghan was never going to do that. So inevitably, you know, whatever, I'm not saying she's perfect because she isn't, but I mean, her approach is anathema to the royal family. So how did the Iron Lady fit into that patriarchal perspective? We've seen the Crown's portrayal of the Iron Lady, Margaret Thatcher's relationship with the Queen. Have you researched that yourself? Well, I, knew, I, well, I was there partly in the sense of, um, and we knew what was going on at the time. I mean, Margaret Thatcher was... was um, was uh, the Queen didn't like Margaret Thatcher. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was um, used to annoy the Queen, uh, both in all sorts of ways. First of all, she she would curtsy so low that you thought she was going in for a limbo dance competition. <laughs> um, absurd, the way she uh, behaved. <laughs> and then beyond that, I mean, she, she, she didn't um, didn't properly consult the Queen on stuff. I mean, the, the, the story about the invasion of Grenada, remember that, by the Americans, and Grenada being a Commonwealth country. Queen said to Commonwealth very seriously. And Grenada was invaded by the Americans in 1984, I think it was, thereabouts. And, um, and of course, the Queen knew nothing about this and found out, I think, from the BBC or someone. Um, and she rang up uh, the Prime Minister and said, oh, you know, what's this about? I want you, I want you to um, uh, come and tell me what's happened to the Grenada. And... Uh, the Prime Minister sent the message back saying, I'm just going to really do something, I'll, I'll, I'll attend to in due course. And the Queen rang back, apparently, or the palace did, as much as the Queen didn't make first The palace rang back and said, no, the Queen requires you to come there now. So uh, that's, off she went to the palace and got dressing down by the Queen about So they weren't, they weren't great uh, soul buddies. The Queen, I think, likes male Prime Ministers better than female Prime Ministers. I mean, um, she didn't really like Theresa May very much, by all accounts, not least of all because she also kind of went in for this ridiculous curtsy thing. And Theresa May being quite a tall woman, it was quite an angular thing to do, like an angle poised lamp she was, you know, when she curtsy. Uh, or uh, rather, and she can't help how she is. I mean, she is how she is, but she would have, she reminded me of kind of olive oil when, you know, in Popeye cars. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so when Thatcher, uh, when her popularity surged, um, the Falklands War victory, yeah. was there some envy from the Queen uh, as portrayed in The Crown? I don't think there was envy. I think the, the thing, I don't like The Crown. I'll tell you why, I, Sean, I don't like The Crown. I don't mind fictional programmes, um, you know, spooks or whatever happens to be, or something which is clearly fictional. Um, and I don't mind factual programmes, but I don't like programmes where there's some truth and some some fiction. You don't actually know what's, what's fact and what's fiction in these programmes, and I think that's unhelpful. So, you know, the crowd is accurate in, in many ways, but it's also making stuff up in other ways. And, and you know, how do, how do the public at large know which is fact and which is fiction? So I don't like that. So I don't think the Queen was envious of, of, uh, of Mrs Thatcher, and I don't think that at all. Just got a few minutes left, so I'm going to ask the viewers if they have any questions for you, Norman. Um, post those, please, in the live chat right now. Okay, we've got one coming already from Ray J. Ask Norman about Thatcher trying to ban Spycatcher book by Peter Wright. What's the story there? Oh, well, that's nothing to do with the Queen, but I mean, yeah, I mean, that was a, <laughs> that was a wonderful thing. Spycatcher was written by, um, by Peter Wright, who was an XMI5 guy. Uh, and of course, the in those days, pre-internet, um, there was still this idea you could you could stop things appearing, uh, and the British government went to huge lengths to try and stop Spycatcher being published, and it was published in the uh, in other countries, and uh, not over here. I actually got my friend uh, in in New York, Ellen, uh, who I'm still very friendly with. I'm happy to say, um, she got Spycatcher in New York for you, posted it to me, so I had Spycatcher um, within the first week. And people were, were, were also getting copies and standing on the street corners, reading out spy catcher to anyone who would listen, you know, the speaker's corner and so on. It was a ridiculous attempt to, to stop things. And uh, the British government even, this is, this is, this is the, 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 the absurdity of it. The British government arranged for copies of Pravda, okay, uh, which means truth, by the way, in Russian, Pravda to be seized at Gatwick Airport as it came in to stop people reading about Spycatcher in Pravda. Um, and then we had this um, famous court case in, uh, in Australia when the British government sent out, um, I forgot who it was who, went, who got sent out to try and defend the British government's position in Australia and got taken to pieces by the, by the lawyer, Malcolm Turnbull, who then subsequently became Australian Prime Minister. And um, uh, I, forgot, I forgot, was it Robert Armstrong, the, the civil servant? But anyway, he came up with this phrase, um, economical with the truth, um, which then got, uh, which then became a standard phrase for that year, and and was he thought it was quite a clever little phrase, uh, but of course he got shredded by the Australian media for this for this phrase and generally, so Spycatcher was an interesting book. It went it went into how MI5 went around London burgling and and bugging people at kind of almost at will. Um, uh, yeah, I've still got it on my bookshelf. I've, I haven't got it here actually. I'll show it to you, but um, excellent excellent book. Daniel would like to know, what does Norman think of conspiracy theories, considering the royal lineage and Dracula? D did the ancestral roots realm over the Transylvania area? Uh, there is, I think, I think Charles has got some property in Transylvania from memory. <laughs> um, no, seriously, I think he has. Um, Charles has probably got a, a castle in Transylvania. I think it's a castle, has got something over there. Um, but look, I mean, I hate the term conspiracy theory. I'll tell you why I hate it, because it is a, a, it's a lazy way of dismissing someone's theory or someone's facts even. Um, you know, they say, oh, you're a, it's a conspiracy theory, as if that's the end of the conversation. And, you know, it's like in football. Don't go, for the, don't go for the ball, go for the player. 
And that's what, what people do when they label you a conspiracy theorist. And of course, as soon as a conspiracy theory turns out to be true, it's no longer a conspiracy theory, it becomes something else. So in, in people's minds, conspiracy theories are always wrong. Well, a lot of them are. I mean, I'm pretty confident Elvis is not on the moon. Okay. But, you know, some are right. Um, you know, it was a conspiracy theory that the Nazis caused the Reichstag fire in 1936, was it? Well, they did cause it. You know, that's what they did. Um, you know, Jack Straw, when he was when he was foreign secretary, uh, was uh, was asked about whether Britain had been involved in rendition uh, or, you know, to help the Americans rendering people into nasty bits of the world to be tortured. And um, he said, no, anyone who says Britain's been involved is a conspiracy theorist. Well, five years later, David Miliband, as foreign secretary, admitted we have been involved in that. Ascension Island have been involved in that. So, you know, all those conspiracy theorists, and theorists at that point were right. But of course, it was no longer conspiracy theorists, it was now fact. So, you know, I hate that term, and it's, I think it's a loose term, it's a lazy term. Uh, and uh, people should challenge the, challenge the argument, not, not try and bring down the players. It's like deny, deny, deny at the time, and then when people have forgotten about it, admit that it was true. You mean not, you mean the nineteen ninety nine with the um, oh, with, with, cons the, with conspiracy theories? It's like oh yeah, well it, yeah. you know in in the immediate aftermath, deny, but decades later, it doesn't matter anymore. We can just say we actually no. did that. And, and this is the thing. I mean, facts become inconvenient facts for the establishment become safe. 30, 40 years on when people have died and it's all moved on and it becomes a footnote in the history that, oh, did you know this happened in 1962? Well, you know, no one's really bothered with that in 1962 anymore because everybody's dead from who was in power at that point. So, you know, the truth sometimes out, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it does, um, you know, so, but it becomes, it becomes easier to tell the truth the further away you are from the incident. We've got time for just one final question. I'm going to take that from Uta Radit too. What's the story of Lord Lucan? Well, Lord Lucan, of course, um, disappeared off through New Haven. And uh, I'm very familiar with that because it was my constituency. Mm. Um, and he parked his car in, I think, Norman Road, actually. And no relation to me. <laughs> but um, uh, parked his car on Norman Road and, and, and got on the ferry, uh, presumably got on the ferry to Dieppe. No conspiracies theory here. Norman's constituency, Norman Road. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't there at the time. But anyway, he disappeared off. We, we, of course we, you're going to say we, that. <laughs> presumably he went on the ferry um, to Dieppe and um, who knows, and died at some point. I mean, he's, not, he's no longer there. He's not in the room with Elvis, anyway. Who the hell was he in the first place? Who was he? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know about Lord Lincoln. He's an establishing figure. There was some issue about someone dying. I, I, don't know the, I don't know the whole story, actually, I've forgotten it. Uh, mm. What I do know is he had a striking resemblance to, um, to uh, the uh, Lib Dem MP for Caithness and Sutherland. Um, he looks exactly the same. So people used to see, um, whose name I've, I've also forgotten for the time being, um, John Thurzo. If you look at John Thurzo, uh, he had a striking relation to Lord Lucan. So people used to see John Thurzo and think that Lord Lucan had reappeared in uh, in Wick or Thurso, but he hasn't really. John John Thurso, by the way, has got a wonderful address. It's John Thurso, Thurso Castle, Thurso. <laughs> On that note, we've run out of time. So below the video are links for Norman's website, Facebook. We've got his Bite Back publishing page. We also have links for Amazon UK, Amazon USA. So depending where you are in the world, it's all right there, one click away. By all means, go on his Facebook. 
and um, ask him questions over there. And if you guys want to, you know, send him a crown so that he's uh, better dressed for the next interview, we would appreciate that. That's great. So, so I'll speak to you. I, I don't know about my website. I don't know you've got a website these days. But my, my literary agent's got a web page with me on. That's what you're referring to, maybe. Yeah, and, Red uh, Hammer. Red Hammer. Yeah, that's the one. And my, and my Facebook, I've got two Facebook pages. One of them's been blocked for some reason. I'm going, and you can't ever speak to anyone at Facebook. So it's, I've only got one Facebook page working. So if you try both of them, one of them you won't get a reply from. All right. Cheers, Norman. You have a great rest of your evening. Good to see you. Thank Take you care. for coming in. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.